Hello and welcome to Office Hours. Our show is dedicated to answering your questions about media and virtual production. Also, it's Saturday, so we have our educators with us today. Feel free to ask questions, um, general education questions. Take advantage of the knowledge here on our panel. If you'd like to do so, go to officehours.global and you can sign up and there be a producer of the show and you get to pick the direction of where we go, as good producers do. Um, we will look forward to our second hour, our, our education hour. Uh, John Snyder will be leading us in discussion about the flip classroom. So we're looking forward to that. Keely, uh, what do we have? Our first question today is from Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. He says, I'm looking for a unicorn, a Thunderbolt 4 dock with dual HDMI as a must, preferably dual LAN with a USB-A and C capable of 96 watt power delivery. Suggestions, I've checked the usual suspects and come up empty. TJ? I also have not found any unicorns. Um, I have looked at uh, the CalDigit and the OWC um, are the two main players in this world, I think. Um, I, I was wondering, though, if dual HDMI is a must. Everyone that I found only has a single HDMI port, but I wonder if you could use a USB-C to HDMI adapter to get you that second HDMI output. Jeffrey? A little bit of hobbling will have to be in order here. The OWC does ha does have the oh yeah now now in English, OWC does have the OWC Thunderbolt Pro dock. The Pro dock has DisplayPort, which is one of the things that uh, that that is going to become a regular in the second generation of uh, Thunderbolt Four when we go to either eighty or one hundred twenty gigabits. Um, and with a with a DisplayPort, you can get a DisplayPort splitter which you can then plug into monitors for that. For the dual LAN, there is nothing out there. You're going to have to hobble something together. But the best part is you have something like the Sonatech 10 gigabit network, dual network. So you could actually have two 10 gigabit uh, uh, devices coming from the Sonatech box. And that's Thunderbolt 3, which would then plug into the Thunderbolt 4. You would then get full four full lanes of, uh, of PCIe with the uh, Sonatech. So that's the best you're gonna do for uh, having a dual LAN and dual uh, HDMI dock. John. Following up on um, what Jeffrey just said, the DisplayPort, be careful, people sell DisplayPort to HDMI cables and many of them will not work with a Mac. Um, so you do want a, a totally separate adapter, I would recommend that can actually convert the signal into HDMI, I'm not sure what it is about that, if there's some chip inside or something, but they work much better on PCs than Macs. Next question. Our next question is coming from TJ Asher here on our panel, and he's from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Netflix is doing a live comedy event on March the 4th, which I think is today for many of us. They are streaming this event, but it seems there's been very little advertisement at this event. Any idea why? Is Netflix afraid the stream would not hold up if they advertise? Yeah, I'm not sure about what they what they think with their whole stock and advertising, but um, I think different media types um, promote their promote their products maybe differently. I don't know how much how much they uh, they use or or what they've done as far as advertising before. Go ahead, Keely. Yeah, I was taking a look actually at my own Netflix feed. And as you can see, my very first splash is Jim Jeffries. I watch comedy all the time on Netflix. It's the only reason I have any personality whatsoever since I don't get out of the house. And 
the fact that I don't see that special today when I'm such an avid comedy watcher, I really I don't understand what's happening here. So maybe there are some concerns about subject or people, but that that's exactly what they would want. They would want all that controversy. So I really have no idea what's going on there. Yeah, you should play it up. Yeah. I, uh, I don't know. I don't know what's going on with that, TJ. Let's go to our next question. All right. Our next question is from Tim Holm in San Lorenzo, California, and also on our panel. I manage a team of 15 volunteers from my house of worship. They work hard and are challenged and happy. I want to preempt or prevent burnout. Any ideas? Go ahead, Dave. Well, my first reaction is that um, as a guy who coordinated many volunteers in his life, one of the things I developed was to think that 50% of your time you're going to be dealing with their problems that they'll bring their context to something and you'll have to listen and hear them and hear the stress and maybe hear their complaint without them complaining. Um, and then you try and find ways to fit them in and work around your needs and match it up against their, their ability to provide for those needs. Um, I found that if I do pay more attention to the, what they bring, uh, I get better results and I see them burning out earlier. And then I ask them to, you know, Tell me what's going on and we'll, we'll accommodate you. But volunteer management is a huge thing. And a lot of people have to work for years to get the kind of experience you need to handle as many as 15 volunteers. So uh, I would say actually social events that involve all the volunteers that aren't related to the actual tasks uh, is a good thing. Having a before and after or um, interval event every once in a while in your projects allows them to unload to each other and then feel they're all working on the same, they're pulling on the same rope and they're on the same team of horses. I've had a lot of folks weigh in on this. Go ahead, Chris. Thank you. Um, I second everything Dave said. Um, basically, my advice would be start with a prayer and end with a debrief in which each volunteer has uh, an invitation to say something about what they just accomplished together. Feeling heard is important, as uh, Dave suggested. Sorry, go ahead, John. All human beings desire autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And it's really helpful for you as the leader if you can connect the job to those three things. Purpose in a ministry setting is pretty simple because you can connect it to your higher purpose. Autonomy is the ability to make decisions. So if you micromanage people or try to take every small decision from them, they will get burned out. And mastery is the ability to get better at something. So encourage you to keep challenging them, give them opportunities to make their own decisions and connect to the wider purpose. Specifically, I th when I was in a ministry setting, what I used to always do is put a term limit on all of our volunteers. And I would say uh, it was a year for each of my teams. And I would just say, after a year, feel free to leave, feel free to stay, uh, but your term limit is up, or your term is up. Guy, what do you do? Yeah, having great gear, I know this is Alex's uh, answer, where you buy really great stuff, uh, even overkill. So having uh, the latest uh, mixer, or the uh, if it's an audio person, having a bigger board that uh, gives them an opportunity to explore and try their things that they might want to learn for somewhere else in their professional career, or, or some people are just geeks and they, they like this stuff. But I, I like uh, John's answer about, uh, you know, know your mission and, and in the um, house of worship field, it's kind of easy on that one because you can connect the dots there. I like to take people out, uh, build team that way, uh, lunches, dinners, coffee, whatever, uh, gatherings outside of uh, the workplace. That's always a, a good one to build team. 
uh, and then doing things to benefit the community. So if you can do a special project, a volunteer effort uh, that involves them and they get to see the outcome, I found that that helps avoid burnout too when they can see the faces light up because you guys did uh, a production that was a success. So those are some of my tips. Tony, what do you have to say? Everything that's been said is fantastic. I wish I had the problem, Tim, of having 15. I'm, there's a, there's, we have a team of four. Uh, what I would say is that I think that you should work on their professional development, as already been said. Work on their professional development, but also let them know that they are appreciated. And the last thing I would say is if you have the ability to break them up into teams of three, I would rotate them so that they don't get burnt out. That, that's my recommendation. Thanks, Tony. Go ahead, Dr. Clark. One more tip that uh, Tony inspired is uh, to build cross-training into your uh, team's uh, duties and, and opportunities so that and the the chance that somebody's uh, unexpectedly absent, there's someone else who's an understudy or has enough um, experience with different parts of the the uh, production system to to move over and and fill in an, an unexpected absence. Uh, working with volunteers involves um, some scrambling sometimes, and the more cross training that's preceded that, the the more flexible you will be and, and able to uh, fill holes on short notice. Guy? Yeah, I forgot to mention the we have this gold stars thing where we'll recognize peers or allow other people to recognize their peers. And people love that when they're getting thanked in front, in front or in private. I have a stack of uh, thank you cards that I like to keep in my bag in my office uh, just so I could write one really fast. And then I like to keep a couple Starbucks gift cards laying around. So if somebody goes above and beyond, I whip one of those out and just did one yesterday. So, I mean, it's having them ready to go. Uh, it's always a good thing. Yeah, I like the all of the, the contributions that uh, people have made as far as making your volunteers, keeping your, keeping your volunteers. I, I think that um, there's a bit of a quotient between how difficult... Uh, the tasks that you're asking your volunteers to do versus how they see their role or their part in it. You know, uh, the whole team is willing to, um, to, to struggle together on difficult and challenging problems as long as they see everyone struggling along with them. But if they feel that they're uh, toiling all on their own, they may uh, drop off. Um, the, the, the advice given about appreciation, I think, is apt. Um, one of the thing, one of the ways in which you can show appreciation is to show that the individual tasks that they're working on are important. Um, because if you show that, you know, you don't, uh, um, it's helpful to, to appreciate, to show that you appreciate the actual volunteers and them showing up, but actually the things that they work on, if you show that those things are important too, they'll, they'll see it as something that has to continue or it's dependent on it or maybe bringing out how people have benefited by some of the things that they've done. Um, volunteers uh, are very much driven by purpose. So keeping that purpose uh, close in focus will keep your volunteers a tight-knit group. Let's go to our next question. Our next question comes from Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. He says, Overcast is a great little podcatcher. How does it search and other features compare to other podcast listening programs? 
Go ahead and lead us off, Keely. Oh, okay. I forgot I was in the, the first one on there, but uh, I've been a very heavy Overcast user for a couple of years now and hadn't really spent too much time in other programs. But the thing that I really like about Overcast is the simplicity with which I can actually control my experience and add episodes to different playlists and things like that so I can focus entirely on what I'm listening to. And I've found it to be lightweight. Search is the same. Search is search because it's all going through the same RSS feeds that are publicly available. So I don't think you're going to find any differentiation there. For me, the ability to, I mean, and most players will sync from different devices and things like that, your exact spot. But I like the granular control I have over my listening experience, being able to go very, very quickly, uh, never very slowly. Uh, timers and all those things and the playlist to me are very, very helpful. TJ? Um, all that Keely said and more. I believe um, Overcast was one of the first to allow a very um, much more granular speed uh, to like one and a quarter and 1.75 times playback. Uh, I listen to everything at at least 1.5 playback. Um, you just get used to being able to adjust that. Um, so they were kind of the originator. Now other people are copying them there. And um, Overcast is only for audio podcasts. If you look, watch any video podcast, Overcast is not for you. But it's a great, it's a great app. Go ahead, Tim. And that's kind of what I was going to piggyback on. Uh, what TJ just said, Overcast does only audio. But um, what I like to is Pocket Cast, which is very similar, but it does video as well. And... Uh, and also what Keeley said about search is search. Uh, it depends what kind of search you're talking about. If you're just looking for other podcasts, um, I think most podcatchers will do that pretty well. You know, just find what, if you've heard a little, you know, a couple of words or whatever that's out there or, you know, news or NPR or whatever. Um, but I like pocket casts um, for the reason of video as well. Let's go to our next question. Our next question is from Tim Holm from San Lorenzo, California, and our panelist. What is a budget dock to get another monitor or two out of my M1 Mac? Color accuracy would not be that important. Go ahead, DJ. So I use this uh, little anchor dock that apparently I've had for five years now. I had to actually look up when I bought the thing. Um, it was like $30, $40 at the time. Uh, they still make them a slightly different look. If you do a search on Amazon for um, USB-C to HDMI adapter, you will see dozens and dozens of these things. They all look very similar to this, so I'm guessing a lot of them are coming out of the same factory, uh, just different branding on them. Um, works well. I have not had any problem with my Mac um, in five years. Jeffrey? I'll put a link in Makana, but uh, back when uh, Zoom ISO first came out, uh, we were all using these uh, little docks by Pluggable. They were a dual HDMI dock, uh, USB-C to dual HDMI. So definitely you can uh, give that a try. D Pluggable also makes uh, a few different docks. I actually have one sitting right here that I, I've got my iPad attached to for uh, so I can connect up audio and, uh, and different items. So Pluggable is pretty decent. The one thing that the one test that I always do on a dock is I always hook up a mouse to the dock and hook it up to the computer. If I plug in anything else and I move that mouse around, you can see 
how much power, how much uh, data is passing through by if the mouse gets really jittery. So that's a good test for anybody to uh, do on any doc that you might have if you have any question on it. Nothing was stirring, not even a mouse then. Okay, good guy. Yeah, currently I have one that's not a budget one that's a CalDigit, but uh, after watching one of these Amazon Lives, I was really intrigued by the connection speed of this one on Amazon. There's a, a really cool, well, to me, he's really cool, uh, Amazon Live dude. Um, I put a link in the chat, but he showed this one, and I was amazed at how fast that uh, when he unplugged the monitors and plugged them back in as to how quickly that they reconnected. So it's called a basis um, is the brand, and I put a link in the chat, but it looks like a, my next purchase. It's about $105 for the 17-in-1, and this gentleman's name is uh, Tool, Tools Electro DIY. He has really good um, content on his uh, Amazon Lives. If you get a chance to subscribe, I'll put a a link again in the chat. Fantastic. I think um, I'll second what Jeffrey said about the pluggables. Um, I have used actually two of these to get a total of five uh, HDMIs out of a Mac M1 uh, MacBook Pro, actually. Um, the way I was able to do that was to use one of the docks, um, like it was shown, um, using one, getting one of the HDMIs. And then um, you can get these depending on whether they have USB-C or USB-A. That's the different models that you can get for pluggable. It will require a driver to get more than an additional um, uh, an additional monitor out of your MacBook or two additional uh, ones out of your Mac Mini. Um, where, do you, but, where do you find those drivers, Josh? Are they so, just a pluggable thing? Yeah. Yeah. Whenever you, um, if you go onto Pluggable's website, um, they'll have the appropriate drivers and they sometimes update them. So you might want to look to, to have them updated. Um, I would, since the, um, the, uh, term was budget, uh, as far as, as far as that goes, I have seen a lot of the same docs, um, uh, used, but you might be cautious about ones that don't have a brand reputation, even if they do look like they're set, they're the same because, um, It'd be a shame to have an expensive uh, laptop. And I've had some where um, they've had some like electrical uh, issues and some leaks and things. So um, sometimes cheaping out on the on the dock uh, or the um, the dongle um, is uh, might might come back to get you. Um, the dongle was necessary when expanding the dock uh, to be able to, to plug in a bunch of these because on the MacBook, I, I think you're looking for them for the Mac mini, uh, perhaps, but the MacBook, that's the only way you get your power and ethernet in is using the dock and one of the dongles. So if you're looking for the, um, USB a, it comes with these, uh, adapters then. So either USB a with an adapter to C or the reverse, if you're looking to plug it directly into the Thunderbolt, uh, on your Mac, let's go to our next question. Our next question comes from Morgan Price in Victoria, British Columbia. I've been asked to develop a script for an immersive VR experience with a branching storyline for students. I want to rapidly prototype with hyperlinks and scripted, pardon me, scripted audio to illustrate. I was thinking Keynote, I know it, and any other software or thoughts? All right, we'll start with Dave and then we'll finish with John. You know, I think it's probably a good idea to use Keynote if it's something you're familiar with and can, you know, it's a quick prototype tool and it'll handle video and audio. And for your VR experience, you're going to want to, you know, map out the branching. 
Uh, all the work I've done in interactive was usually done with uh, the Omni suite of software. Omni has uh, Omni Focus to handle your to-do list. Uh, Omni Plan is a project management tool. It's quite robust, and it'll have a good way of visualizing the branching of your choices in the interactions. And it'll also show loopbacks to where you can come back to a, a thing and go around again. Omni Outliner, of course, is a really good thing for writing up your scripts and, and organizing the script, especially in mid-project when you're re reorganizing it. Uh, Omni uh, Outliner allows you to pull and push on different sections and move them around. Uh, Omni Graffle, which Alex is a big fan of, is really great for building your schematic when you get to the point of actually doing this, this VR production and not prototyping it. Uh, then that's a real good tool for uh, handling the schematics of it and where all the linkages are and where the audio files are going to sit and where the video is going to go. And OmniWeb, which is really not uh, a supported project anymore, uh, did once uh, handle visualization of VR. So it would be a nice little window for people to see the VR in development uh, before it becomes sort of goggle-oriented. John Preto. Quite ironic you asked this question. I was watching a podcast with uh, Emod, who's the CEO of Stability AI, and he said almost word for word what you're trying to accomplish here using generative AI tools. This is exactly the kind of thing you're going to be able to do with generative AI for all of this stuff. And all the games in the, of the future will all be prototyped in uh, using generative tools. So you're about six months or 12 months early. That's the problem. Go ahead, John. Yeah, I would recommend if it's with a larger organization, check to see if you have an instructional designer on staff. They likely have access to tools that develop scenarios. Um, and that would be significantly easier to build branching paths is an e-learning authoring tool like Articulate or Captivate or even iSpring Suite. If you don't have those tools available, um, Keynote would be fine. Or there's a lot of like easy to build wiki softwares that also might be a quick prototyping tool. Tony. I just wanted to add, I am a big fan of Keynote. I think you can do everything in Keynote, but also uh, Canva has added AI features and text to video is a good solution. So take a look at Canva. Let's go to our next question. Our next question comes from our panelist, Tony Mobley, who just spoke, and he's in Noonan, Georgia. And he asks, has anyone looked at the streaming platform wave.video? And there's a link in the chat. Jeffrey. It looks very impressive. I've been seeing a lot of these uh, these sites popping up as of recent. Uh, you know, like the the restream streamyards were were basically the start of it. Now uh, we've got uh, you know like Be Live and, and and Wave Video and all these other ones that are doing everything all in once. You can record your stuff. You can live stream your stuff. You can create your graphics, you can uh, put your overlays on and everything like that. Uh, the one big issue, one big question that I have for uh, sites like this is where are they getting their streaming uh, and their CDN from? Is it, I'm assuming it's all going to be from Amazon and it's just another portal or another uh, step into the Amazon uh, infrastructure. So you have an intermediary that, that gives you a lot of functionality as opposed to Amazon, which you have to do with that all yourself. So it looks pretty decent. The pricing is pretty decent, but it's kind of like crack. You know, you, once, once you get in there, you, you realize, oh, I still got to pay that monthly fee or else I lose everything that I just did. 
And I'm curious, Tony, uh, was there a particular features that uh, drew you to this or was it the word of mouth? All the cool kids are using Wave. It, it was a word of mouth thing. A friend shared it with me on yesterday. I took a look at it. He He's all in. He went on and purchased the lifetime membership of it. And uh, I think it was like crazy. Uh, I want to say that he got it for $69 and over the lifetime, it's like $1,500 value. So um, he did it through um, AppSumo, and uh, that that was his recommendation. So I just I just wanted to take a look and wanted to know if anybody else had, had taken a look at it. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I think the panel has basically laid out the, the difference between some of the different platforms. Some of them are web-based and there's advantages and disadvantages that typically they do what they do well, um, but they're pretty confined to those templates and perhaps that capacity. Uh, Jeffrey, you have another thought? Yeah. If you can get it for six, what was it $69 or whatever for a lifetime deal, I'd, I'd pick that up. Uh, the only thing that I would double check is uh, check uh, on something like Crunchbase on the uh, company and make sure that they have the proper amount of investors and they haven't, had any failed ventures come through uh, before that. All right, let's go to our next question. Our next question comes from Sean Johnson in New York. Has anyone had experience using Bitfire for broadcast transmission? Seems like it might be similar to LTN. And there's a link there in the comments. Well, I've not, but they've got flashy. I almost ended up with the flame over my head. They've got some flashy advertising. Uh, go ahead, Guy. Yeah, I've been used it. I was preparing for the question and looking through the side a little bit, and then it dawned on me that I'd seen that logo somewhere, and it was um, I had to go through my photos. But when I was touring the uh, the Amazon truck uh, for the Thursday night football, you could see it down there in the bottom right corner. They're using Bitfire. So if the NFL and the <laughs> the big boys are using it, it's, it's got to be a, a a professional tool that's uh, of that caliber where you could expect to pay the big big bucks too. And LTN and the switch is, is big money. I mean, it's basically glass to glass end to end transfer. So you're, you're getting fiber to fiber and big bandwidth. So uh, I'm going to do a little more research on it. Interesting. We'll have to take a look at that. Thanks, Sean, for the question. Let's go to our next question. Yeah, Morgan Price from Victoria, British Columbia is back. Why do people boom shotgun and hyper cardio cardio vocal mics from above are the reasons more physical i.e space proximity or acoustic for example the resonance of the chest dave yeah i'd like to find a hypercardio vocal mic but actually it means hypercardioid um narrow field microphones uh allow you to reduce uh sound not wanted in the process so room tone uh people who are nearby uh, in terms of uh, performance, uh, sometimes a hypercardioid is used in a, uh, a chorus group so that each singer has some isolation and they're not sort of leaking into each other. Uh, putting it from on top uh, is a way of reducing any kind of room noise and just hearing the, it's kind of like a video uh, uh, light, a uh, spotlight, uh, where you're creating a pool of sound right there and whatever the person's generating is going to come through. It is uh, recognized sometimes that a hypercardioid or a, a shotgun mic will uh, pick up more of the uh, resonance in the chest. I find that lapels actually do that probably even better if that's a need. 
Uh, but lapels are usually omnis and they pick up all around the room. So you've got to be careful on your levels in, in quiet spaces. So I, I think it's more a, a sound control issue um, for most uh, recording situations. And and you can play with different shotguns and hypercardioids to find out which one sounds best with the uh, person making the noise. So uh, it might work well to have a hypercardioid on some voices, but I think if we put one on Tony Mobley, um, it would it would be a little less robust than what he's got now. Yeah, TJ. Part of it has to do with pure physics. Um, if you're doing, let's say, a medium shot, and you have somebody that you're photographing from the waist up, well, if you want that microphone not in the frame, the um, sound guy's worst nightmare, boom in the frame or mic in the frame. Um, putting it above their head will get it much closer to their mouth, the source of the sound, than if you put it down below their waist. So part of it is just plain, simple physics. Jeffrey? And it depends on how far that microphone is away from the person. So like in a situation like this, I'd usually have the boom right about here and with the capsule pointed right towards my mouth at best, best uh, uh, approximation. If you're doing it farther away, then uh, getting it up higher, the, you can once again, you're not dealing with lower end uh, obstructions. That could be people, that could be furniture, that could be anything like that. And then, of course, it gives that direct line to the mouth as best as possible. It's not going, you're still going to have a lot of room noise the farther away you get from it, but you have a better chance of picking up the vocals that you're looking for. Dave? I once had a sound guy at an event which was outside. Uh, handling the shotgun microphone and doing the best job he could, but he wasn't listening closely on the headphones. And uh, as I was listening on the headphones, his drift while holding the mic uh, went slightly to the left, and all I could hear was the bird in the tree behind the guy. So it's got to be carefully monitored as well. It's a good idea to hear what you're doing while you're setting it up. Might be good to watch one of those guys do their thing. Maybe we can get an expert in sometime for a second hour. Go, TJ. Uh, Mickey Makachor chimed up in the chat here, and Mickey, who is an audio professional, uh, says, to get the mic as close to the mouth as possible without being in the frame, we try to achieve the best signal-to-noise ratio as possible. All right, thanks, Mickey, and thanks, TJ. Let's go to our next question. Our next question comes from James Babbitt in San Diego, California. Do the panelists have a recommendation for a calendar app on iOS for non-business use? Maybe Google Calendar or Apple Calendar. Tim? Yeah, I really like Google Calendar. Um, and um, it you can actually create individual calendars or additional calendars. So if you wanted a personal one, you can actually create that and kind of uh, have that um or business ones that you can subscribe to basically and uh, have more than one, which you can turn on and off uh, at leisure. Um, and then as a bonus, I a plus one for OmniFocus for task management. TJ? I use the built-in iOS calendar app. Uh, it's also built into the Mac and kind of everywhere. Um, if you set an appointment in one, it kind of shows everywhere on all of your devices. So you don't really have to think about syncing anything. You can also, like Google Calendar, create if I want to have like a vacation calendar and maybe a work calendar, an activities calendar. I could set up various calendars, and as I add events, I could say, oh, add this to the vacation calendar or add this to the activities calendar. Um, so, yeah, I've been 
doing the iOS built-in. Keely. Yeah, I'm a massive Apple fangirl and have been using the built-in tools for a long time. But when I started getting invited to all these various Zoom events and things like that that required me or asked me to place these on Google calendars, I thought, fine, I'll grab that. But how do I get that into my iCloud. Well, it turns out if you use a tool like Fantastical, which is a subscription service to get all the features, but to me, extremely worth the entry price. Um, I'm able to bring all of my iCloud calendars and my Google calendars all into one place. And there's extra features, including built-in scheduling. So if somebody wants to grab an event with me for either of my two businesses, the built-in fantastical feature of openings lets them book that onto my calendar, which uh, cuts out a bit more another subscription service that I might have to use. And the Fantastical app on the iOS has a widget as well. So it's very well built in and just offers more features than anything you can get right out of the box. John? Uh, Keely stole my idea. Um, especially if you're collaborating with other people, I think Fantastical is probably the best app. If it's just for yourself, I'd also recommend BusyCal. It's a more traditional calendaring program that lets you synchronize to both Google calendars, Outlook calendars, and Apple calendars. Uh, I really like that for my personal life. And I noticed that um, Alex Lindsay in the chat says that if you have many devices, iCal is way easier. Also, if you log into Google from iCloud, account, all Google Exchange events show up. Let's go to our next question. Our next question, it comes from Douglas Carmichael. The 16-inch MVP MacBook Pro has a high power mode, which allows the fans to run at higher speeds for intensive workloads. Apple mentions things like graphic intensive workflows as benefiting from the mode. Would any audio workflows benefit as well? Go ahead, Dave. Yeah, it's not just graphics intensive. You're right. Uh, it'll be helpful with your audio workflow, but unless you're doing, you know, 10,000 tracks, likely you're not overloading it. So high power mode is primarily for battery operation, uh, distinguishing that from being plugged in. So when you're not plugged in, you'll be on low power mode and low power mode might stay on when you plug your MacBook in. Uh, you can ask the battery and it's under the battery uh, menu on the menu bar. Uh, to switch to high power mode. If you know you're going to be doing some serious rendering, either video 3D or rendering audio effects, uh, but many of the you know photographic effects and all that are quite quick on the Mac. So they don't usually, they're burst kind of operations and then they go back to being uh, a moderate speed. Um, and, and I guess uh, high power assumes you're gonna be plugged in. So unless you're expecting to overload the system, uh, you're not really gonna need high power. And if you're gonna work off your desk and, and remotely, well then you'll have low power mode to preserve the battery. Um, it's uh, Apple calls it resource in intensive because uh, scientific calculations and uh, uh, processing of that information sometimes is CPU intensive. So it's, it's for a lot of different uh, verticals. Jeffrey? So the answer is, if you don't want to have your uh, MacBook overheat, then the high-powered mode would be great. Uh, as as Mickey said in the chat, you, there's not too many uh, 
main intensive uses for it to have it in high power mode. But if you're, if you, let's say you've got 32 channels of audio and each channel has a plugin attached to it. And some of these plugins are getting very graphical. So you're actually using a lot of the video as well as, as the audio in this case, then all of a sudden, then you're, you're taking a lot of power. You're taking a lot of uh, process coming from the, uh, from the MacBook. Yeah. It can overheat at a certain point in time. Um, so, uh, just, uh, just watch what you're doing and, and keep an eye on the, uh, on all the stats. And, uh, if you need to switch it over, switch it over. Go ahead, guy. Yeah. There was an app that I just bought recently, uh, iStatistica Pro and I bought it because I was watching all these M1 versus M2 tests. I just bought one of the M2 Mac minis, the Costco down the street had one for whatever, 579. So I picked one up to run some tests on Zoom ISO. And, uh, as I, started looking at iStatistica, there's a spot where you could turn on the fans uh, and the fan monitoring. So it's called sensor data. So you turn on the sensor data and then you could keep an eye on what app is doing what to the CPU. And uh, you could see the performance uh, metrics and you can see the heat, uh, the temperature of each fan. So I would get that app and see if you're even getting close to even 20%. I mean, you'd really have to be running some serious uh, channels through there with plugins to, to saturate in M1. I mean, I, I'd love to see what you're doing that's got you even worried. Um, the other thing is if you're, if you're running iStatistica is you could turn on remote. And what I did is I put a second monitor up where uh, through a web browser with the port number, you can uh, have a big graphical display on a whole other computer that shows you what's going on with that computer. So if you do have it in another room or if you just want to keep an eye on things, uh, that's a it's a fantastic app. And, and using the remote control is a nice use of uh, an old computer to be able to see what's going on with that machine if you're really concerned about it uh, getting saturated. Kaylee? I know that uh, Douglas has been asking a number of questions in the last several days about MacBook Pros and the 14-inch and the 16-inch and how do they feel in usage and things like that. So what I would just point out for him and encourage you to try is that there is a 15-day full return policy on uh, MacBook Pros. So you can grab it. You can put it through its paces, see how it feels for you. I know we're all scared of the addictive qualities of Apple products and that once you get it in your hot little hands, you're never going to want to let it go. That would certainly be my problem. But I think when you're trying to compare and really find out whether this is going to suit your purposes, give that a try and don't be afraid to take it back if it isn't exactly what you need. All right. Well, thank you for that. Uh, Douglas, hopefully giving you some food for thought. Um, and um, just repeating what uh, Mickey said, it was partially uh, quoted, but uh, maybe some heavy convolution and noise suppression might be the thing that gets your gets your fan running. Um, but uh, I remember seeing when the M1 came out, the number of Logic plugins that you could add was ridiculous <laughs> on that. So you might you might not need the extra noise. Another reminder, just from our producers, please vote on our questions. Also, feel free to put them in uh, from now till the, to the end of our first question. Uh, also, um, educational questions are fair game as we have a panel full of educational professionals. Let's go to our next question. Our panelist, Tim Holm from San Lorenzo, California, is back. It's opening weekend for F1 and IndyCar this weekend. Have you been watching the Netflix Drive to Survive series? Comments on the production, please. Tim? Well, I already binged them all, so they're, they're already done. Uh, this is one of those things that you want to turn up to um, the OSHA sound limits. Um, 
so that you don't damage your hearing, but get right up next to damaging your hearing because it's so loud and so great and so well mixed. I, I, uh, I love the production. Um, I love the fast pace uh, of it. And uh, the way they do the storytelling is something that would be really good to kind of break down and to look at in a, in a slower, more methodical manner, you know, to go back because it's really kind of the top, the top of the, the top of the field as far as, uh, you know, budget and production goes. So I really loved it. Can you tell? DJ? Uh, I'm with Tim. I have seen all 10 episodes. I, I watched all 10 episodes last weekend, so I'm almost ashamed to admit that. Um, the, the, Production value is top notch, and the way they embed the the Netflix crew in with the teams, um, they actually did that. Started that in the pandemic, where because each team uh, during the pandemic had to be in their own isolated bubble, so they would dress the Netflix crew in the team colors so that everybody would know this is the you know this is the group that goes with that team. So they didn't have these people kind of wander around like, hey, who do you belong to, and. Um, that just embedding them in the team has just sort of um, given them just even deeper access um, to, uh, you know, things that are going on in the team. One thing I did notice um, when they are showing the interviews, a lot of the times they'll cut to a side view, which I'm really not a fan of. If, if you know, if I'm being interviewed, okay, I want to I want to talk, but um, they'll, they'll cut to the side view and they will show the, the softbox that they have sitting just off to the side lighting them. You can see it's basically one big uh, softbox, you know, a huge umbrella type of softbox that they're lighting everybody for. Um, very simple. There, there's not even a background light. And then when they are doing stuff on track or stuff um, uh, like just walking around the pit areas, I'll see different frame rates a video from different frame rates. I'll see like 30 frame per second or even higher than like 24 frame per second, all kind of cut intermingled. And then occasionally I'll see um, on track uh, footage kind of pumped up to HDR mode, which, you know, the in-car cameras are not, they're only 720p cameras on the race cars and they're not doing HDR, but they're running those, uh, that footage through process to get it up to some HDR standard. I got to admit, it looks pretty darn good. Let's go to our next question. Our next question comes from Brett Bilo in Appleton, Wisconsin. How does the built-in chroma keying in the new Blackmagic design ATEM Television Studio HD8 ISO compare to the quality of their Ultimate 12 product line when using a green screen in a studio? Guy, guy. Yeah, so during the announcements, I didn't see any changes to the software. So if you're used to having an, an ATEM, you've got, uh, for your chroma settings, you've got these adjustments here. So it's, uh, you know, pick your color, key adjustments for foreground, background, key edge, spill, and flare suppression. So that's five adjustments. Whereas if we look at an, an Ultimate, there's just dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of things that you can correct. So it, it's night and day. We're using one of these in our... Um, one button studio and the results, everybody's just shocked at how well an Ultimate does with a property of that green screen. So uh, the cheapest one, I believe it's $4.95. I'd say just buy one and try it out. You, you can always return it if you don't like the results, but uh, it, it's it's pretty mind blowing what you're able to get that used to cost 30, 40,000 bucks for 495 bucks. So I would say take pick one up. All right, usually if they've got something brand new in there, they'll, they'll let you know in the advertising. 
Let's go to our next question. Douglas Carmichael's back with our next question. I've been thinking about the traditional term B-roll when we talk about deck A and deck B. In our modern world, what would be the equivalent for deck B? Would it be a hyperdeck or a similar unit? Go ahead, Dave. Well, I get to be an OG here and uh, talk about how B-roll came from film, and it was for newsrooms and playback that uh, the main story was shot on a one-roll, and then shots for complementing or inserting into the project were on a second roll. And they used to use a kind of checkerboard pattern with leader where the person would be talking and then the B-roll would have these breaks and then when the picture showed up, they would cut to it and show it as if it were edited into the show. When linear editing happened and when videotape came over, uh, this B-roll stayed with us as a second roll of footage that an editor could draw from to uh, patch together a short news piece. Uh, in the streaming world, uh, things aren't so much B-roll, and, and a lot of things that are built are just straight edits. They don't have an A-B-roll kind of concept. So the notion of B-roll is simply cutaways and extra shots to illustrate what you're talking about. I don't know about the equivalent uh, for Deck A and Deck B, because um, live television is where I think that would apply, and I and whatever people are comfortable using for playback of uh, other footage to play over top of a live feed um, is their choice, what, they're, what they feel is the best for their uses. Some of these are software solutions to run through a, a Mac Mini, and other ones are actual you know, playback machines with their own memory and, and processors. So uh, a HyperDeck apparently is a very good unit. It's got its particular needs and uses, and it applies well to an HDMI environment. But uh, I, I think, you know, equivalent to what B-roll was in the old days, uh, there's not much need for it anymore. Next question. Our next question comes from Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. What is based AI? Go ahead, John. You know, Paul, this is mostly a political question, and you know how we feel about political questions here on Office Hours, but I'm going to try to be as objective as possible. Um, it, and so you you posed a question yesterday about Igor Babushkin, who was hired by Elon, and, and they confirmed yesterday that he was hired by Twitter. And so Elon's trying to be as objective as he possibly can with facts-based uh, generative text than OpenAI. OpenAI supposedly has a, has a slant towards the, the left. Uh, you know, what's funny is a lot of these articles that come out and claim that I'll go and type in that exact prompt and get a completely different answer. And so I think that OpenAI is trying to do their best to be as fair as possible. Go ahead, John. Yeah, nothing to add from what John said. Next question. Our next question is from Douglas Carmichael. What digital mixing consoles have been the most popular for mega music events in FOH monitor broadcast? Go ahead, Jeffrey. So mega, well, it's really subjective uh, and it really depends on what you need for, uh, for your mixing console. Uh, I, my first digital mixing console was the Yamaha series, so the Yamaha CL. Uh, I've I've seen a, a lot of great stuff uh, off of that. There's been a lot of uh, a lot of other mixers as well. The Midas line is uh, great for live events, but uh, you know if you got if you only need something like 32 channels, 
Uh, but uh, there's it really depends on what somebody's grown up with. Alan and Heath has some great uh, great mixers out there. Uh, so it's it's just subjective at that point. Let's go to our next question. Our next question comes from Aaron Graham in Boston, Massachusetts. Has anybody watched the Eugene Levy series, The Reluctant Traveler? Comments on the production asks this Canadian as well. Well, um, the advertisement looks great. Fantastic. In fact, uh, go ahead, Aaron. I just found this whole series incredibly amazing to watch because, and I watched all the whole series so far. It just came out last week. And what fascinated me were all the, I'm guessing the drone shots of going over different areas, different cities. And it was just so spectacular that I'm wondering a little bit about like how they did it, but just how they got such great quality. Dave? Well, I haven't seen the show. I've seen the trailer for it. And uh, Eugene's made a living being the cantankerous old guy who is reluctantly involved in whatever he's doing. And so this is a perfect situation for him to be sort of enlightened by having those experiences, thinking they're going to be terrible and then finding they're, they're not so terrible. Uh, there's another show from the UK, uh, which is a, a sort of parody of the uh, documentary style of looking at how the world works. And uh, she's very funny, too. Uh, I haven't seen it. I'm looking forward to trying it out. And as you're telling me, if the production quality is fantastic, it's going to be a fun fun watch. You always get these great uh, pay attention and watch suggestions here on the panel. Let's go to our next question. It's Douglas Carmichael, and he's asking, besides day-to-day -day tasks and audio work, I might be taking an IT-related position. In my tests of a 14-inch MacBook Pro, I was able to use Mission Control to work well with Logic or Safari. Would a terminal-centric IT workflow be fine on a 14-inch coming from a 15-inch? What do you think, TJ? Well, since I do write code on a 13-inch uh, MacBook Pro, um, probably. However, I'm going to offer a suggestion. Get a second monitor. They're not that expensive. You can pick up uh, literally, a th you can get like a 30-inch monitor for about $150. It doesn't have to be super color accurate. It just needs to have space to arrange your windows and your text on. And attach that, and then you've got suddenly two monitors, and you can start to really split your workflow and you know focus one thing on one monitor, focus another thing on another monitor. So um, it, will, it will power it and get another monitor. What do you think, John? I would agree. IT related can mean a lot of different things. In my experience, a lot of IT departments do a lot of remoting into other PCs. If you're trying to look at a full screen of a separate PC and do something on your own, that size might not work, but a second monitor should solve that for you. Next question. Our next question is Paul Terry Wallace. Which of the three seasons of Star Trek Picard do you like the best? What definition are you getting when you watch it? HDR, 4K, and no spoilers, please. <laughs> Good, TJ. Um, yes, I will not spoil anything. I have watched. I watched the first episode in its entirety. The second episode, or second season, rather. I watched the first season in its entirety. The second season, I got to episode three, and pretty much figured out the entire plot from there. And fell off and then months later went back watched the very last episode and went yep i nailed the plot um so i detest any show that 
where I can guess the plot. Even if I think I can guess the plot, I will just stop watching. Been that way since I was a little kid. Uh, season three, I've watched one episode. I'm intrigued. I will say that much. And I'm watching it on my um, OLED TV, 4K, high dynamic range, um, you know, good sound. And, you know, that's one of those shows like, oh, you, you crank that sound up and you get those subwoofers uh, pushing some air. It's really awesome. Tony? I love Star Trek, period, across the board, all, all of the shows. Um, I am watching it on a 55-inch 4K TV and my new MacBook Pro, and I love it. Jeffrey? The only thing I'll say about season three is they've got a brand new showrunner uh, who's taking, who is basically doing the Marvel approach and then taking from the actual Star Trek lore and putting it into uh, so lots of things are going to be as close to the uh, Vestas or close to the uh, to to what people are reading uh, on comic books. People are reading in novels uh, as best as possible. Of course, they have to deal with season one and season two, which were kind of offshoots. It's the same reason why I don't I didn't really care too much for the uh, reboot of Star Trek, is because it rewrote a whole bunch of lore. Um, and you really have to you really have to be able to push everything away and and re-soak yourself with the content without saying, hey, Klingons don't look like that. Go ahead, TJ. Yeah, I thought the first uh first season of Picard was actually pretty clever, a really interesting, unique storyline. Um, I won't say what it was, but um if you are a Star Trek fan of any kind, give it a look. Let's go to our next question. Paul Terry Wallace is back with his last question here. Is there any interest in an office hours watch party for the Netflix live event later on tonight if you're in North America? The lineup includes Jerry Seinfeld, David Spade, Dana Carvey, Matthew McConaughey, Sir Paul McCartney, and several other comedians. And it is tabling at 7 p.m. Pacific, 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central. Jeffrey, interested? Uh the short, the, the long, well, for a lot of people, probably the answer is yes, but for the office hours, the, answer, the short answer is no, because it's not going to be a clean show at, at all. And I did find a little bit of information on how you can, uh, how, how it's going to happen. Nothing is being promoted until uh, 2120 Eastern time. When you'll see, you'll open up Netflix, you're going to see a little red button that shows on. That's where that's where you're going to go in. And everything that I've read from that, it looks like uh, what you would see if you were to do a YouTube live. So you'll be able to rewind, you'll be able to fast forward, you'll be able, I think you'll even be able to speed up, but I'm not 100% on that one. Uh, and uh, you'll be able to watch what you want, but especially uh, from Chris Rock is my guess. Well, we want to thank all of our producers for giving us all of our first hour questions, but don't go anywhere. Uh, we're going to go right into our education hour with John. Before we do, just a note that um, we have a fantastic lineup. If you get the daily email, you'll note that we'll have several topics that may be of interest to you. AI for business on our business day on Monday. Lower thirds will be a discussion for graphics. We'll see surround sound basics in history on Wednesday, and we'll look at uh, a ruthless review, but in HDR on our video day on Thursday. Also, another review is look at some of our 
producers, some of our panelists, their setups. So if you have a nice setup, it'd be a good time to jump onto the panel for that one. So looking forward to our next lineup. Um, John, what are we headed into for education? Thanks, Josh. Today, we're going to be talking about the flipped classroom, and that's where teachers or instructors choose to use the classroom time that they have with students to answer student questions, practice their um, actual skills, perform assessments, and then they actually ask the students to absorb or take in the content or lecture asynchronously or at home. So instead of doing uh, practice worksheets at home as homework, you would take the reading or watch YouTube videos at home. And when you come into the classroom, you're doing that practice. Uh, there's lots of different reasons why teachers choose to do that. Uh, I first started hearing the flip about the flipped classroom in about 2015 or so is when it started getting quite popular in education circles, though it's been around for significantly longer than that. And some would argue it's been around for many, many generations. Uh, so we'll start with our our panelists. So panelists, if you have any thoughts or comments on the flipped classroom approach, um, there does seem to be some mixed results when student outcomes for teachers who use it. Uh, then we'll turn it over to our producers for questions. So producers, it's really up to you to identify where we go with this conversation. If you want us to uh, wax poetically about the philosophy of flipping a classroom, certainly put those sorts of questions in. Or if you'd ask for tips and tricks, tips and tricks to be more practical, uh, you can put those in the uh, questions in Mukana as well. So we'll start off with Chris Clark. What are your thoughts on the flipped classroom? Thank you, John. I, I think that the big idea about the flipped classroom is that it's a rethinking of how to make the best use of the time between class meetings. That is, we, we usually think or traditionally think that the the most important learning time is when the class comes together in person or virtually and hears from the authority, usually the instructor. Um, but that's usually only in higher education. It's typically an hour to three hours a week. And then all those other hours um, are spent procrastinating on <laughs> Uh, doing the reading assignment or the homework problems and so forth. And the flipped classroom idea is uh, thinking more creatively about how to make the time between class meetings more uh, beneficial, more of a learning experience, more of an enga engagement with the content, and therefore reuse, uh, repurposing the time we spend together as being about reporting on and what you did and what you learned between meetings, um, getting organized for what you're going to do for the next uh, period of time after this meeting ends, and basically answering questions and uh, hearing from your peers about what they ran into and how they solved the problem. So it's like a mini office hours uh, drawing from the peers in the class. I think it's is a great idea. It's a creative idea. It's a way of um, organizing uh, more project-based or program-based, uh, problem-based learning. I'll stop there. It's interesting, Dr. Clark. You you mentioned you focused on the time between the classes, and and when I think of the flip classroom, I think of the time in the class. Any thoughts on to why our approaches might be different when we're thinking about it? Yes, um, I think. We miss out if we forget that there are tens of hours uh, between class meetings that um, 
if you're a clever instructor, you can um, engage your students in thinking about and acting on uh, the the skills and the the uh, understanding the content um, on the quote unquote their own time and in their own context, and then have them come back together to uh, tell adventures. It's sort of like the classroom is a, a base camp, and then the rest of the week and the rest of the world is their um, is their lab. Hmm. Aaron, what are your thoughts or experiences? So I started to get into the flipped classroom probably in 2019, and I got to go to a professional development um, by this man named Matthew Ogles, who wrote the book Flipping the Classroom, um, a comprehensive guide to reconstructing the classroom of the future. And it was a couple hour seminar, and I thought it was really fascinating. He uses some tech tools that honestly I have forgotten exactly how to use them. I think it was called Pearl Trees. And it was this very interactive with the teacher, like zooming in on one thing and then coming back out. But I'm pretty sure you can do the same thing with Keynote or with Google Slides. Um, but it was a lot about having students watch media before they come into class or at some point during their class before they got to start working on a project or a concept, testing out a concept in the classroom. So I started to use it in my classroom before the pandemic hit as part of my center work. So basically, if I was doing a lesson on irregular verbs, when the students got to me at the teacher table, before they got to me, they had to watch the video that I posted on Google Classroom first, going over super basics of irregular verbs. So when they came to me, some of the education, some of the lesson has already been taught. So they already have some background knowledge on the information so that when we start to use it in practice, they're not asking the super basic questions. Um, and then once the pandemic hit and then once, you know, things on Zoom started to happen, I had to change how I use the flipped classroom a little bit more in that we weren't allowed to assign homework, which I'm not a fan of homework anyway. So it didn't really matter in that sense. But instead of assigning it for homework, like I said, I'd have to put a video in or assign it to a certain breakout space so they could watch it ahead of time before they got to come to me. But what I've noticed the past two years is that I've assigned videos for homework. That's been my flipped classroom model in that they watch lessons or videos of lessons for what we're going to do the next day so that they're already slightly prepped when they come into school. So in that sense, I am more guiding them during center time versus giving them the basic mechanics. So the famous phrase that I got from flipping the classroom, which I'm sure you've heard me say before, is teachers should be guides on the side, not sages on the stage, because sometimes students will know more than we do about a particular topic due to their background knowledge. Um, I will say I have had some pushback from some teachers when I share what I do, only because, especially if we assign students YouTube videos, we can't prove they watched it or they didn't watch it. If we have our own video and we push it out, we can say it was viewed 38 times, but could one student have watched it four times, another 17 times? 
we don't know. So that was something that was a little bit of a glitch. So a couple of teachers and I came up with some ideas to enhance flipped classroom, but I want to make sure that everybody has a chance to (laughs) chime in on this. So I'll maybe come back around near the end. Aaron, what sorts of things are you doing in the classroom after they've watched the videos? Are you spending it mostly answering questions or giving them like project work or when you say center, center learning, what kinds of things are students doing? Right. So a lot of it is putting it into more practice. So it might not be a project per se, but it might be um, like for the example I gave about irregular verbs, it might be looking at a writing um, sample or an example that a student did, or quite frankly, that I did purposely messing up verb tenses and seeing if they can identify and then tell me why. So it's a lot of more real world things that you might be doing, um, maybe like as an editor, um, using some of those skills to put it into real world practice is very helpful because then it takes away the, why do I have to learn this question? Great. Dave? It occurred to me uh, when the subject came up in our list of things to try and do is that uh, back in the 60s, uh, Marshall McLuhan wrote a book called City as Classroom. And I think he was proposing a flipped classroom model. I think his idea that students experience a different world when they're in their city than they do when they're inside a school. And that the need was to bring people into the world as it is existing rather than as theorized or lectured on. And I think what I'm hearing in some concepts of this flipped classroom is that sending people out to gather their observations and ask their questions and develop their questions about why things are the way they are or how things work or what do I need to know to be able to measure the height of a building or this sort of stuff? Why are engineers so important to the world? That sort of stuff. And and then from that, the curriculum emerges. And this seems to me to be probably a direction that we're going because mediating this this world experience is happening almost at a global level. People are able to access information from all cultures and all different kinds of sources that that are outside the notions of a local curriculum or a regional county curriculum. And that maybe this is a better way of utilizing classroom and, and school resources to have it as a sort of resource center for discussion, analysis, uh, research, or collating the research they're getting out in the real world and then help them understand and process this so that it sticks and that their need to know the thing starts from the outside the classroom experience. They bring that need into the the school environment, share it with a group of people who are similar age or interest, and then the teacher facilitates where that information can be got, how it can be properly processed, how to account for other factors in terms of gathering information and accuracy and all that other useful stuff, uh, and then be able to apply it to other things outside of just that question. Where else in our world do these principles apply and and broaden the, the understanding of students uh, about critical thinking about anything they're experiencing when they're not in school? So I think, it, for me, the flipped classroom has a concept that's uh, fairly recently applied but uh, has been theorized for some time. Yeah, and Sean Johnson in the chat is asking if this is a primarily a an American phenomenon flipping the classroom, and 
because in Northern Europe, the idea of asking students to do too much outside of the class, even in high school, is frowned upon. And I think that is some of what Aaron was talking about. There's The pushback is, are we putting more on students than they can handle, especially as you have multiple classes, as students are asked to do a lot of time outside. I think there's a, there's a little bit of a risk there. My answer to Sean is it's primarily a trend. And like most trends, when people hear about it, they get excited and they might accept it whether or not it's effective. And flipping the classroom does not make your teaching any more effective if you use other poorly designed instructional methodologies. And it's really important to teach well, whether it's in the classroom setting or you flip the classroom. But it's a way for teachers to really uh, focus on individual students' needs in the classroom rather than treating the class as a uh, homogenous one. They can have the instruction be handled outside of school hours so that when the, you have the time with the students, you can give the students what they need and you can focus on the important things like can the student apply this to their life, like some of the practices Aaron was talking about. Uh, Dr. Clark? One of the big challenges of school learning and teaching is called transfer, meaning um, that students can learn and show mastery in a classroom setting of a, a subject matter or content or set of skills, but then it's hard to predict whether they'll be able to apply those uh, understandings and skills in other settings different than the classroom. And so um, the flipped classroom idea basically uh, encourages uh, learning and applying the uh, concepts, skills, and so forth in settings other than the classroom before you fully understand them. So act, it's about acting first in the real world and then coming back together into the sheltered and scaffolded world of the classroom to explain, troubleshoot, and uh, understand more deeply why things uh, work the way they did or failed to work the way they did. So at base, it's an approach that encourages uh, transfer early, that is uh, acting in settings where we hope you'll be able to apply these, the things you're being taught um, in your everyday life or in your professional life, and then having a scaffolded support by uh, peers and, and by uh, teachers with more expertise than you have, more experience than you have, to um, fine-tune and uh, ruthlessly review your experiences in the quote-unquote outside world so that the, the transfer problem uh, goes away because most of the learning and support for the learning and acting on the learning takes place while you're learning it. And Alex is mentioning in the chat, the instructional portion of it that we are describing as homework, it doesn't have to necessarily be required to flip the classroom. Uh, it's, you know, for those learners who don't need it, they maybe don't need to watch those instructional videos. It's, it depends a little bit on the classroom age, I think also in how new the content is to the students as to how, how many people would need to reference that in order to achieve the desired outcomes. Tony? As I was listening to, to everyone's comment about the flipped classroom, one of the things that occurred to me is that the way in which I learn or the way in which I have experienced people learning 
is through authentic interaction and conversation. And so if there is authentic interaction with the materials, be it homework or whatever spurs, I guess a a better example would be some of our experiences in office hours um, prime us to do our homework um, outside of office hours. We get inspired by something that we have been um, given an opportunity to experience or play with, and then we go and work on it and develop it and, and then bring it back to the group and then share what we've learned. And through our learning and experiencing it, we share that with others. And because of the authentic conversation, then everybody learns. And so I I kind of think of this whole idea of flipped classroom being an exchange that takes place between individuals when the conversation or the interaction is authentic. And I think that it works. I, I think that office hours is an example of how authentic interaction and positive authentic exchange works. Thank you. Let's dive into our questions now. Dave, what's our first question? Well, it's actually from me, and I think I'm just channeling uh, Keeley here. Uh, Keeley mentioned uh, earlier having a Socratic method experience in her years of law school. I think I understand the method, but could someone explain how this approach relates to a flipped classroom? Go ahead, Aaron. So based on the the wording in the question, it's talking about Keeley's years in law school. So to be a law student, you need to know a lot about the law and a lot about the justice system. So you usually have a assignments to read up on different laws, different topics that pertain to laws or specific cases you're working on in class. So in terms of that's kind of the flipped classroom in the sense that you're studying this material ahead of time so that when you come into class, you're not blindsided with the information. But the Socratic method is more of the teacher being in charge of the lesson saying, you know, here, let me rattle off a question. Dave, answer the question. Rattling on off another question. Chris, answer the question. Just very quick um, question and answer. But it's more for the teacher to get almost a formative assessment on a student to see if they read or understood the material that they've been working on. So it's a lot of teachers asking the questions of the students, um, very like it's either right or it's wrong, very basic Bloom's taxonomy questions. Um, But there's no real higher order thinking in that unless you get to more like group work, like talking about how you could solve a particular problem. Thanks, Dr. Clark. My understanding of the Socratic method in the original is um, not a good example of the flipped classroom, in my opinion. Um, the Socratic method is is mostly documented in uh, one of the dialogues between uh, Socrates and the slave boy named Mino. And what that consisted of was 
Socrates knowing the teacher, knowing um, what the background knowledge of the slave boy was. And it was a kind of a demonstration that Socrates could teach a complicated um, geometric or mathematical concept to somebody who you would think uh, wasn't capable of uh, understanding such abstract, powerful ideas. But because Socrates knew the background knowledge of Mino, he started with questions that um, Mino could answer yes or no, um, based on on what Socrates knew Mino had as background knowledge. And then he built on those yes and no uh, questions and answers, sort of like a, a geometric proof. If this was true, then wouldn't you agree that this is also true? This follows from that. And so um, it wasn't the case that Mino was doing watching videos uh, between classes. It was the case that Mino had lived a life and Socrates knew where to start to build the edifice that led to uh, Mino agreeing or perhaps understanding that this set of complex ideas really were based on the logic of built on things that he knew and believed uh, already. So it's a, it's a pitch for uh, building on the background knowledge of your learners more than the flipped classroom. And it, it is, uh, it's interesting because I wonder what Socrates would think of our definition of the Socratic method. Uh, because what we have is not even Socrates himself. It's a, someone who wrote those stories about him. So it's a secondhand account of a secondhand account. Um, and then we discuss it in the classroom. So it's an interesting uh, recursion of learning there. Dave, what's our next question? Our next question comes from Douglas Carmichael. He's asking, could tools like Mukana be an aid for flipping the classroom? Aaron, could you use it? I think it's a definite possibility, especially for students that are online. Um, in the classroom, it's a little easier, in a physical classroom, it's a little easier to just sit near the people who are learning the same things or who are working on the same concept and just talk to them. However, when we were online, it was a little difficult for me, especially going from breakout room to breakout room, because every time you go to a new breakout room, anything that was said in the chat beforehand, I can't see because I've just popped into it. But the students could have been having a fantastic discussion and had questions, but I couldn't see it. So if there was something like Mukana that I could have looked back and said, oh, you know, breakout room number two had a lot of questions about this. Let me pop in and see if I can guide them towards the right answer. I think it would have been a lot more helpful. And Aaron, I'm curious, when you were doing distance education, did you find that different students um, were more or less communicative than they are in the classroom? Or like whether it's the more or less um, interest, introverted or extroverted, did that flip at all itself in distance learning? Oh, absolutely. There were so many students who the first week or two of school would never turn their camera on, never participate, but they would turn in all their assignments. But once they understood the concept of the classroom in that how we do our routines, more of those students were able to participate and they could and they understood they can participate in the chat. They can participate 
unmuting. They can participate by turning on their camera and showing something. So I felt like the more comfortable they got with the concept of distance learning and the flipped classroom, they were much more willing to participate. Yeah, and there's definitely something about the students themselves. Um, some really thrive, in my experience, in the in the classroom, physical classroom setting where they raise their hand first to answer the question. You have to like ask them to stop raising their hand um, or they'll to monopolize all the time. And other students will look at them. And if Susie's going to raise her hand, then that means I don't have to raise mine. And I think one one example where like Mukana could be helpful is for those students who need to process a little bit or think a little bit or put their questions in outside the class, then those would be ready to be discussed in the classroom. And so in that scenario, I could see it being a, an asynchronous tool for the classroom setting. So you could, like we use it today, is you can put your questions in any time after it resets and it will be answered the next day during office hours. Um, you could do something similar like that. And Alex in the, in the chat is saying that that's what this tool is designed for, especially when we transcend geolocal classrooms. Um, another big advantage of the flipped classroom is you can really have people who are professional uh, video instructors and have the very best lecturers, the very best demonstrators, the very best graphics be given to all students. And so then you can use tools like Mukana to have that follow-up discussion. Uh, what's our next question there, Dave? Paul Terry Wallace from Austin, Texas is asking, what is a flipped classroom and how does it differ from traditional classroom instruction? Go ahead, Aaron. So I'll start with the second half of the question first. So a traditional classroom instruction is a teacher at the front of the room telling the students, giving them information about whatever they are learning about, whatever topic, whatever subject matter. And the students are getting that information from the teacher in whatever means the teacher is showing that information, whether it be a whiteboard, whether it be conversation, whether it be media like videos or music. In a flipped classroom, the students are learning or hearing some of this material ahead of time, whether it's in the classroom at the beginning of class, maybe for a high school or college level class, or maybe middle school if they're trustworthy enough, you give them the video the first 10 minutes of class as everybody is filtering in. And maybe students have a question or two that's individual for that student, maybe about a grade or something like that. So the teacher can talk with that student while the others are watching or listening to a podcast or some other media that is based on that topic. And then the teacher is able to still teach the lesson, but it's not as it's not as based on teaching them the whole thing from A to Z. It's let me add in supplemental information that the video or the podcast didn't give. And then let's work in projects or use some real world examples to try to solve some of these problems. So it's a lot more that the teacher isn't the main focus. It's more that the students learning at their own pace is the center of that type of classroom. 100% agree with the teacher not being on the spotlight for the flipped classroom as the, as the main differentiator. Uh, next question, please, Dave. Our next one comes from Eric Billings in Washington, D.C. He's asking, are some subjects more appropriate for a flipped classroom than others? Dr. Clark? Generally speaking, it's not so much the subject as in subject matter that differentiates the fit or the match between the flipped classroom or um, other approaches. 
I think that the big um, advantage comes if the course or the the course of study involves uh, a project-based um, method. So if you're if your learners are doing something outside of class, their project, whatever form that takes, and it may be challenging in some su abstract subject matters to um, find sensible projects to be done in the abstract. But if it's, it's more concrete and applied, then um, the flipped classroom makes a lot of sense. It's a better fit in that um, the time spent face-to-face -face or um, in live streaming can be uh, kind of like office hours. It's a, a troubleshooting. It's a reporting of your, your setbacks and your small victories and uh, an organizing of yourself and your peers for the next week or the, the next stage of, of the project that's a, a longer-term continuing activity that you're going to be pursuing or perhaps doing a prototype and a first draft and, and so forth uh, throughout the course. So I think that's where the, uh, once, once you get into the flipped classroom, if you're going to go into it fully, uh, I think it, it's, it advocates uh, also going to a problem-based or project-based model as well. Aaron? I would agree. Chris, that there are some things that are easier to make flipped classroom content for. So for things that are very concrete, irregular verbs, multiplying by three, things that students will need just some of that background knowledge, and then they can apply it in a real world scenario when they come to work with a group or with a teacher. I would say some things that I have personally found more difficult when doing flipped classroom is are um, science concepts because a lot of science, especially in the younger grades, is very visual and is very hands-on. So yes, I can very much show them pictures of or sped up videos of plants that have been put out in sunlight and plants that have been kept in the dark and how they've grown over a week or two. I can do that, but seeing it in person is a lot easier to have that conversation around as it's happening versus remember in the video at spot, you know, at, you know, minute two, second 31, it's not as easy for that. And then thinking a little bit more broadly about more like high school and college topics that concepts like ethics and philosophy and um, psychology, it's a little bit more difficult to, really fully grasp it just from reading about it or watching a video about it or watching a, an interview from, um, from a doctor or an expert in that field. Um, I think that's more of the, you have to give just very basics, just enough to understand the vocab and the terminology, but then have a more discussion base in the, in the classroom, whether you're there physically or online. And I would say for the corporate world, almost every instructional object can benefit from a portion of it being in a flipped classroom approach. And, and when we're thinking in corporate education, we don't know 
the background of all of our learners. Like in K through 12 education, you have an idea of where students should be. And that's just not true once people get into the workforce. And so it can be really helpful to have learning aids that you hand out before you do something in person because you also have to have a return on investment for the time people are spending in the learning event, whatever that is. And so you need to be able to make sure that everyone can at least come with some background and have some established foundation before you start instructing them. And um, when we're thinking of learning experience design, typically what we do is we identify what the goal of the education is. After attending this training or after going through this module, my learners will be able to do X, Y, or Z. And then you identify the um, learning objects or practices that will best achieve those outcomes. And so you're always thinking of what outcome do I need and what's the best fit approach to that. Sometimes it's a um, instruction and then a lecture or discussion as a small group. And sometimes you don't even need that portion of the education materials. Maybe it's just, this is better off as just an e-learning module. But in corporate education, we're really thinking about what skills are we trying to impart and what activities will best impart those skills. And we'll go to our next question, Dave. Paul Terry Wallace, again from Austin, Texas, is asking, how can technology be used to support and enhance the flipped classroom model? And what are some potential challenges associated with using technology this way? Go ahead, Dave. I, I see a huge potential here, um, not just in the flipped classroom model, but even just generally in education, training, uh, corporate support, I, I see the opportunity in a global sense to be able to access people that you can't bring to the classroom. You can access uh, experiences that you can't bring into the classroom. Some of what NASA has been doing with classes and having them interview uh, astronauts from the space station has been sort of a prototype of what's possible in the future. And that if it may or may not apply to the curriculum, it is simply an enhancement of opening the walls of the classroom to what is happening outside. And Aaron. Based on what I've been working with for the past year or two, I've used technology as my main source of flipping the classroom, whether it's a podcast or a video. My students get videos throughout the day because it is whether you're teaching by yourself or if you're in a classroom like mine where you have two other adults that are also helping guide center work, um, it still helps the students gain some independence by following along with whatever we have going on in Google Classroom. The thing that I found challenging, like I said before, was the concept of the YouTube video. Maybe it was watched, maybe it wasn't watched, and maybe not every student needs it. But for something that is very foundational that they have never seen before, students will need to see that video or that podcast or listen to that podcast. So what I found that helped a lot for a while was um, a website called Edpuzzle. So Edpuzzle is where you can upload YouTube videos or your own videos, and you can embed questions throughout. You can have multiple choice questions or open response questions. And that way, the teacher can track how far the student watched the video, how many times they watched the video, where they rewatched different sections. Because what's great about that program is that if you are answering a question and you get it wrong, 
there's a button that will not let you continue. It just says rewatch. So the student has to rewatch that section that the question is based on, and then they answer the question and move on. The one challenge I have found with that is sometimes students are very lucky guessers and they listen haphazardly, click A and it's right. However, usually the teachers or whatever educators you're working with can figure that out pretty quickly once they start working with you in smaller groups and having discussions or starting to work on projects. And then in that tool, Aaron, are you making those videos and designing those questions or are they um, like canned things that you use? A lot of the time I'm using a YouTube video that I have found very helpful because what I tend to do is I'll look up whatever I'm needing to teach my students and I'll watch a couple of the videos. If there's one that I think that with the exception of how I would deliver it to my students, like my intonation, if all the information is there, then I'll use that video, but then I'll make up my own questions based on that video. And then I make sure that I check in with my students and say, hey, what color shirt was that person wearing? Just to make sure that they watch the whole thing. But yes, I have used my own videos from time to time. Um, and I, because I've made them, I do the awkward pause so that I can put it into Edpuzzle and say, okay, this is where I can put my question. Interesting. I have seen Camtasia has an online hosted solution that does something similar. I've never seen the Edpuzzle, but I'll have to take a look. Uh, Tony. Yeah, I just wanted to add that I think that we're in uh, a fantastic space in that um, early 2000s, I was at a middle school that was a NASA middle school. And what that meant was that when there were missions going on, um, at the space station that our students had an, an opportunity to engage with the astronauts on the space station. It was uh, that the technology that was being used at that time would be kind of trying for us at this point in terms of the lag between uh, the question being asked of the astronauts and the response. But I would say that the fact that we are in this space now where technology is able to do the things, amazing things that it that it does. And, you know, I, I just wanted to echo what Dave said in terms of about there is no limitation in terms of bringing in experts from around the globe to participate in a conversation or interaction with students. And so this is amazing space. I almost wish that I could be in school at this point to experience this opportunity to have a Nobel Prize uh, person speak to us in in the classroom setting, and there there is there are no limitations, only the ones that we place on ourselves. Thanks, Tony. And producers, you could participate in our discussion today by putting in your questions and voting up or down the questions that you see uh, in our question list as you can drive the conversation. Dave, what's our next question? John Snyder, a fellow from Reno, Nevada, is asking, how did the pandemic impact the importance or frequency of flipping the classroom? Chris? Well, I'm just going to focus on one of many um, 
impacts of the pandemic and the closing of schools uh, during the pandemic, the earlier stages of the pandemic, which is that um, being forced to pivot to online uh, schooling revealed that we needed to do something different than we traditionally did. Um, but so many teachers were required to essentially try to do what they did in the face-to-face classroom through Zoom or through some other uh, live streaming uh, medium. And it was ill-received. Uh, teachers were ill-prepared for the pivot. And, and so there was great uh, dissatisfaction among everyone, I think, uh, about how that worked. Uh, there was also, uh, it made visible what was going on behind the classroom door before uh, schools were closed. Uh, and, and there was not a great satisfaction with that either. So it was awkward. It was embarrassing. Um, but it also uh, raised the uh, urgency of looking for an alternative way of, uh, of teaching and learning than, um, than what we have been uh, doing traditionally. How did it impact you, Erin? So when the pandemic hit, it was very difficult for that first year, that first spring of 2020, for me to get my students to come online and interact in a learning environment because, you know, we had students who were still in bed or they were at the beach or they were in a swimming pool, things like that. And I felt like flipping the classroom because they were so used to the routine of going to Google Classroom, checking out the videos, talking about it, that they still were watching them according to them. And then when I spoke with them, I realized they had some background knowledge on it, so they had to have watched the videos. So because of that, it just kind of changed my idea that, yes, flipping the classroom can be done within the four walls of a classroom, but it can also be done anywhere. Thank you. And Tony. I, I keep going back to this. I think that the genie is outside of the bottle now in that <laughs> that learning has been transformed by the pandemic from the standpoint that um, Alex always alludes to the idea of the the big boat that's having to turn slowly. And I will say that what has happened is that the infrastructure that was in place prior to the pandemic is pushing people back to doing things the way that they were done before. But because I say that the genie has been let out of the bottle, what has happened is that people have jumped ship. They've jumped the ship and they are they figured out that for their children, that this is the path forward. But you have to understand that that big boat that is trying to right itself has all of these infrastructure things that are in place, the cooking 
for the students, the lunches, the the paper products, the printing, the the uh, the IT staff, all of the things that that go on to make school the way it was prior to the pandemic. People are not wanting to turn those things loose. And because they are not wanting to turn those things loose, they continue to push the things that were going on before. Some parents, as I said, have jumped ship and they are going to do what they need to do embracing technology, embracing distance learning to have their children get the best education that's possible. And so I could say more, but I'm going to stop there. All right. Bring us home, Dave. Well, I was thinking of actually extending this question a little bit because it seems to have changed the relationship between parents, teachers, and the students themselves. Uh, beforehand, teachers handed off, uh, and I'm speaking generally, uh, you know, sense of the children were obligated to go to school, st- uh, parents were obligated to put them in school, and then what happened in school was only peripherally in their control. Now we find that there was a lot of in-the-home learning to augment what was happening online learning, and this brought parents into the equation. And I think the first round of the pandemic put too much of the burden of continuing education and trying to keep the process going on the teachers and the administrators as well, trying to make all this you know, work very quickly and, and jump onto the platform while it was still being built. The second phase, I think, was when students realized this is going to continue for a long time and there's no point in resisting it, and they began to explore it even further and cooperate and learn how to behave in that virtual classroom instead of in the physical one and adapt a little bit. And this is probably going to benefit them in the future, even in corporate training and other instructional layers. The other side, of course, is the parents began to see the process and how it can be interrupted by outside factors. And they wanted continuity and they wanted to ensure that students were properly prepared for later life. As they left high school during the pandemic, there was some concern that they weren't adequately prepared for college. So I think all of that has come into the discussion. It started, and it was a technical sort of solution to the problem, but it's going to continue to be a player in the changes that are happening in education. The flipped classroom is just one of many concepts. It's just one of the various things that have been experimented on for the last 20 years. And because of this little anomaly in our global society, not just one country, uh, we're now re-examining how we do education. And I think that's a real impact uh, about what happened, if, and not just in flipping the classroom. And Dr. Clark. Before the pandemic and the closing of schools, um, the idea of online learning in, in higher education was um, resisted by many and um, was um, developed to a higher degree of uh, elaborateness by a few colleges and universities uh, who saw the possibilities and and were willing or able to invest in uh, in the technology and in course design and redesign 
um, so that they the course the redesigned courses would be more appropriate for distance learning and uh, delivery. Uh, the shutdown of face-to-face schooling in higher education uh, suddenly raised the profile of the quality and extensiveness of online offerings, uh, giving uh, college and university students and graduate students the, uh, the motivation and the opportunity to continue the momentum of their higher education uh, without interruption and to overcome some of the uh, the reluctance and barriers to it. Um, and I think that momentum has continued since um, face-to-face education has opened back up again, that many, many more colleges and universities have realized that they really need to have an effective presence in the uh, online education space, as well as perhaps improving the, uh, the ways in which they do teaching and learning face-to-face. So I think the, uh, the closing of schools due to the pandemic was an accelerator of um, adoption and refinement of our higher ed uh, online t- learning opportunities. Absolutely. What's our next question, Dave? Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas, is asking, what are the steps in flipping a classroom? He also has a link here to creately.com, and um, I don't know if we've had time to watch that. What's your approach, Aaron? So I clicked on the on the link, and actually it's pretty much exactly what I did. So the first step, it says, is to introduce the task. So most teachers, when they start off with a task, they're saying, Today, we're going to be talking about this. This is what you need to do first. So usually at that point, I would say, instead of me teaching this to you for 10 minutes, you're going to watch a five-minute video. Then we're going to talk about it when you come see me, and I can add more teaching and still teach the lesson, but they at least have some background knowledge on it. The second step is to select learning materials. So they say, for example, they can be online videos, online readings, presentations, podcasts. So this is what many teachers do is that they give students maybe reading material ahead of time or some other media like videos, podcasts, and presentations. So students have to see where this is. So probably your learning management system or however you push out material to your students is where they're going to find this information. And then the step three is to evaluate what students have learned. That's through whether that's talking about it at your teacher group, whether talking about it in class as a whole discussion, or a physical test, quiz, project, or presentation. Um, And then the fourth step is to conduct in-class activities so that you can really make sure that they understand all that material. So in essence, that's pretty much what I do. Um, I don't have to introduce the concept every single time because my students know that there is usually some sort of media that they watch or listen to before they come to me. Perfect. Next question. This is from Sean Johnson in New York. Is the flipped classroom concept really designed for college or professional level education? Much of the progressive academic world, primarily in Scandinavia, the idea of homework is frowned upon in primary and secondary education. 
Go ahead, Dave. Well, this brings up that, that question of self-directed learning. Uh, for me, uh, self-directed learning is when you want to explore something and then you go to resources that you think are going to help you understand it. But you also need someone to help guide you through the learning of that thing. And the flipped classroom allows a person to do that individual exploration or self-directed exploration, but then the guidance comes as a secondary effect in order for it, that learning actually to be shared by a group and everyone benefit from that exploration or from contributions from other members of the group of what their exploration results were and how they contrast with your own. So it may be that it works better in a self-directed environment like a college, but it doesn't mean that a classroom or even a kindergarten can't apply the same sort of methods. And as Aaron is showing, once the students understand and expect this process to be their daily classroom experience, I think it works in all, all directions. Chris? I agree that it's easier to visualize it in a college and university setting, and that's my primary experience. Uh, but I would say that um, part of the cultural objection to uh, homework of traditional form in Europe and Scandinavia, I agree with it uh, because the traditional homework is is busy work. It's it's stupid stuff. Um, well, that's the way it's felt by. Uh, by the students and their parents probably. So, so the idea of a, a well done flipped classroom model is to uh, take advantage of what the elementary or secondary school level people are doing already. They're, they're doing something in, in those hours between class meetings and, and the idea is to make, to help, uh, capture some of that something that they're already doing and add uh, a depth of uh, understanding or critique or documentation to that. So it's more about paying attention to the world that you're already in rather than um, importing the, uh, the worksheet and problem set uh, world of schooling into onto your dining room table. Yeah, and like Aaron expressed earlier, you can use the school day to flip the classroom as well. It doesn't have to be done at home. This next question, please. Well, the next question comes from this fellow named Dave Troutman in Edmonton, Alberta. How does this approach affect testing and performance evaluation? It's an idea that popped up during one of the previous questions. So, Aaron? Yeah, I've noticed that a lot of my students tend to do a little bit better um, on different tests and projects when they've seen the material ahead of time and they've gotten to work with either other peers and classmates or with a teacher to enhance their ideas. So one of the things that I've been doing recently is um, every three weeks we have a new writing assignment. So a couple of times over those three weeks, I'll throw in a video for homework about Pers what if we're working on like persuasive writing, like what are some terms you can use? Why do you want to persuade someone? Just different videos throughout the week so that they can have something else to grasp onto. And I have found that with that, 
plus the teaching of my co-teacher in that center, the students were able to write more. They were able to use more ideas and be able to use the time with her as more critical thinking about how they can expand their ideas versus what does the word persuasion mean? Excellent. Next question. This is from Eric Billings in Washington, D.C. How much teacher effort is needed to use a flipped classroom approach compared to the traditional classroom? Is recycling material or lessons easier, or does it require more effort to keep it updated? Aaron? There are many um, YouTube um, groups, um, subscriptions that I follow, and I know that these videos are reliable, they are impactful, they have the information that I need them to have. So there are as many times that I will save those videos under um, a subgroup in my YouTube so that the next year when I come back, I can say, instead of trying to reinvent the wheel and say, you know, let me find 10 more videos on multiplying by three, I already have a bunch that I've used that the students have liked become engaged with, and I can use them for a few years. Now, there are some topics that do change over time. However, I'm pretty sure that my multiplication videos are safe for at least a couple years. But if there are new advances to things or a new way of looking at something, that's when I would start scouring again or making my own video to see, to update the information for my students. Dr. Clark. I would say initially it's it's more difficult and more demanding for the teacher uh, when he or she is uh, beginning to make the shift toward a flipped classroom from whatever they have been doing prior. I think once you get yourself uh, trained and and your students accepting something different than what they expected or what they've been um, good at, frankly. Um, they knew how to make the the world work under the old rules, and now you're creating a new set of rules. Once that transition is made, once we're more comfortable with it, then it's actually it's easier for everyone and more satisfying and gratifying for everyone. I think. Um, I will say that um, one of the ways to make that transition work better for yourself as an instructor is to practice what you preach. That is, if you're shifting to a more uh, project-based model, then uh, you, the instructor, need to have a project that's parallel to what you're asking your students to do. And um, if you have questions about uh, small victories and, uh, and rough spots that you've run into, you need to start using the the peer group of your students who are also uh, running into challenges and, and small victories uh, to get help yourself from them so that you make it clear to yourself and to others that you're a learner as well and you're learning how to uh, make the most of this uh, system that may be new to everyone and eventually it'll it'll become as comfortable as uh, daily participation in office hours. 
And I would add to that, for teachers who only follow the curriculum, it's significantly more work. But great teachers have always put in more effort than just following the curriculum. And the job of the instructor becomes one of a curator rather than a content creator when you move to flipping the classroom. So it's a, a change in approach rather than a, a change in time investment, I would argue. Next question. Next question is from Joe Kidd in the San Francisco Bay Area of California. These challenges seem like a massive missed investment opportunity for every well-funded classroom management software suite used in the U.S. public and private institutions today. All these seem to have not improved in the past decade. How is this possible? A poor craftsman blames their tools. And teachers aren't typically taught how to use their tools well. And so they don't oftentimes know how to use what they already have. You don't need special software or tools to flip your classroom or to be a great teacher. Um, they can enhance what your skills are, but they don't necessarily by themselves make you a better teacher. So um, the opposite could also be true. Schools could just invest in new technology and just assume it'll fix everything. And that won't be the solve either. Next question. Next one is from Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. What are some effective strategies for designing and implementing a flipped classroom and their activities and assessments? Erin? The one that's been the most helpful for me, the two websites are, like I said before, Edpuzzle, that lets the students interact with the media and you know that they've watched it and you know that they're getting information from it. And then the other effective strategy that helps if... Either you don't want to use Edpuzzle or there's just a time constraint for putting questions on there is to make a blue kit or a gim kit or some other fun game for the students to still interact with the content from the video that you make and create, just like you would create a formative assessment or summative assessment with questions. And then at that point, they're able to know the basics and know the comprehension parts of it so that when they come back to their peers or the teacher, they can then evolve their thinking to more critical thinking aspects of the topic. Thanks, Aaron. And we're also going to have a special guest, Alan Carrington, in April to talk about the Pedagogy Wheel, which is a tool that you can use to identify appropriate learning activities uh, for those assessments. So I encourage you to tune in. I think it's going to be April 22nd, probably. Next question. This is from Douglas Carmichael. The foundation of the flipped classroom is high quality video and audio. How do we bridge the gap between media professionals and educators to advance online education at all levels? Go ahead, Dave. Well, Douglas, it is a challenge to get everyone to understand that the quality of the transmission is directly proportional to the effectiveness of the presentation. And we practice that here in office hours all the time. We get people to up their game. We get guests to work with us to improve their presentations. And we're learning a lot about where the resistance points are and how to overcome them and how to encourage people to be more effective and find that almost with Chris Clark's notion, this is transferable experience. This is transferable knowledge. And it will transfer to other aspects of people's lives. So I think the foundation uh, of being high quality video and high quality audio is a key thing for the acceptance of a flipped classroom concept, but it's also applicable in other areas as well, even up into the corporate boardrooms. And Aaron. The way I can think about potentially even solving this problem is 
having a teacher record themselves teaching a lesson to an empty classroom and then having people like on office hours take that lesson and that idea, create graphics, create things like Keynote and show teachers how it can be better so that then the teacher can turn around and if they have the technology for it, show what has been put together for them using their knowledge of the content and everyone else's knowledge here on the technology side of it. I think that way you can bring in the strong audio visuals as well as the strong content matter. I think it's also important to point out that for instructional video use, um, video quality is not necessarily the most important thing. There are other factors that are more important. And in the Discord for this week, I posted a video that did not have super high quality production values, but it was very instructional. And I specifically selected it because of its instruction rather than its uh, camera work, let's say. Uh, so be aware that for instruction, there are other practices that you should keep in mind than just the quality of the, um, the panache. Next question. The next question is from Paul Terry Wallace. How do you get your students to watch the best YouTube videos and how do you assess their YouTube experience? Aaron? The best way I can think about this is to do a mini ruthless review with my students in the classroom and show them a video that is, you know, low audio quality or low video quality and say, what works, what doesn't work. And it doesn't even have to be long. It can be a one minute clip and having students tell me, oh, I can't hear them very well, or, or I hear cars in the background, so on and so forth. So then I show them I um, examples of really great YouTubers and what they do differently. I can't explain the technology side behind it, but I can tell them, does this look good or does this sound good and have them respond. And then I tell them the best way for you to get information is to find videos like these. Another great way is just to create a playlist that they can go to based on certain topics so that they can review videos that you've deemed are great. And then Sometimes they'll surprise you and tell you, hey, it wasn't great, and this is why. And then you can turn it into a learning experience. Let them make a video that would choose, that would talk about the same topic and how they would make it better. Great idea. Dave? I actually just wanted to ask Erin if she ever has students contribute YouTube videos to your class list. Uh, do, they, do you give them an opportunity to say, well, I found one that I think all the rest of the class would like to see? I have done that in the past. Um, in the past year or two, I haven't seen as many, but a couple of students will send me links and they'll say, could this be put on the list? And then I do a quick preview, make sure that it's all appropriate, and then I put it up on the list. I also wanted to ask, yeah, have you had some success with students really throwing in for making their own content? A few times, yeah, especially the year that I was distance learning, I was able to get a lot more. Um, when they're in the classroom, it's a little bit more difficult just because there's so many students and there's always background noise. And then a kid will come around the corner and say, hey, what are you doing? And then they have to restart the video. So I think it's very helpful for distance learning for them to create their own videos or as like an extended extra credit thing on their own time at home in a more quiet environment. 
All right. Well, thank you all for your contributions today. That brings us to the end of our show. A special thanks to our all-volunteer back-end crew who keep things running. It takes a tremendous amount of effort each week, each day even, and we're grateful for your time. If anyone who's watching is interested in learning a new skill or how our back-end works, I want to encourage you to make sure to sign up via our daily email. Um, and in about an hour, there will be our first volunteer orientation meeting, and you can find the link for that in Discord. Today, Steve Yuroff was training for RFI Documenter. Uh, for anyone wondering, that role is marking down any suggestions for improvement uh, to help us keep our axes sharp. So thanks, Steve. You're off. Get it? Anyways, uh, thank you, panel, for lending your time and your expertise. Uh, we always go a little bit, get a little bit smarter on these Saturdays, so I appreciate learning from you and uh, being able to have these conversations with you. I encourage everyone to stay for our credits to recognize the effort put into today's production. Our questions came from our producers. Thank you for driving us 40,007 miles or 362 million bananas stacked end to end. That's about half as many bananas as you need to fill up a cargo ship, if anyone's wondering. So thank you all. Hope you have a great week. Next week, Dave will be hosting with a special guest, Georgia Dow, who is a licensed therapist, and we'll talk about um, trauma and student trauma specifically. So looking forward to that. Have a great week, everyone.